Okay, guys, let's open to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and think about barriers to revival. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I don't know how I could get out of bed in the morning without it. Second Corinthians 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me. To keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There are many barriers to the power of God in revival, but the biggest barrier might not be in our surroundings. The biggest barrier might not be politics or economics or popular culture or any of the usual suspects. The real barrier might be within us. And surprisingly, our most significant barrier to revival might not be our weaknesses. The most significant barrier to revival might be our strengths. It might be our giftedness or our education or our success or our advantages or our impressiveness. And that's because it's almost impossible for us not to trust in ourselves when we have advantages and so forth. And when we trust in ourselves, then we exalt ourselves and we just get in the way. We don't mean to. 
We just do. We can't help it. We hardly know what it feels like not to trust in ourselves and exalt ourselves. So God graciously saves us from ourselves by sending us weakness. It's a gift. It feels like loss, but in fact it's deeper investment. He sends us weakness. He sends us failure. He sends us need. He sends us embarrassment. Awkwardness. Impasse. Inadequacy. And sometimes to an extreme degree. So that life becomes unbearable. That's actually a very positive development. When life is impossible, that's the very point at which we are at the threshold of our greatest breakthrough. The Lord inevitably takes us to a place of hardship that we never dreamed would ever happen. I don't think we need to go looking for some catastrophe of life-altering magnitude. It'll come find us. (laughs) And when it does, not if it does, when it does, the Lord will be in it. He will give us this gift, this gift of weakness in some significant way. He will give us the gift of erect life. And when he does, he will not be robbing us. He will be taking away from us the life that we would have chosen, but he cannot bless. And he will be giving to us the life we never would have chosen, but the life he can bless and use. Charles Simeon wrote a letter to a friend. Charles Simeon, Church of England, um, Born in 1759, I think. Died in 1836. Served for many years in Cambridge. For the first few decades of his service there at the church where he was appointed by the bishop, the congregation did not want him. And they abandoned him. They humiliated him in every way they knew how. He kept going and eventually won their hearts. And when he died in 1836, the whole city of Cambridge came out to honor him. Charles Simeon. We just heard about the Simeon Trust. That's who it is. He wrote to a friend, Another observation in a former letter of yours has not escaped my remembrance. The three lessons which a minister has to learn. One, humility. Two, Humility. (laughs) Three, humility. How long are we learning the true nature of Christianity? Now, there's a question of translation in the passage. The ESV of verse 10 reads, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. The NIV, 
reads, that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses. I almost never agree with the NIV <laughs> against the ESV, but I think this the NIV, I think the ESV is wrong. The question is, when Paul says this, is he claiming contentment or enjoyment? We know that eudokeo can mean delight in because this is the word used in Matthew 17 at the transfiguration when the father says of the son, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The father was not merely contented with him, he was delighted with him. And this stronger translation of the verb fits better in our verse because verse 10 is restating the strong point of verse 9. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Paul is enthusiastic. That goes beyond contentment. I think we should read, I delight, rather than I am content. I like this new arrangement, Paul is saying. I like this new life I never would have chosen for myself. I have more of Jesus this way. My ministry is getting traction like never before. So Paul is opening up to us his personal life at a very, his almost a, an intimate level. We're actually seeing inside the personal, very personal thoughts and feelings of the Apostle Paul from 2,000 years ago, out of which his real power flowed. Here's what Paul discovered. Here's the whole point. Our greatest breakthrough to spiritual power will come through the worst experience of our lives. Wouldn't it be great if that weren't true? Wouldn't it be great if, you know, life is smooth sailing and that's when it gets really great? But I read this passage. I don't know what else to think, guys, but our greatest breakthrough to spiritual power will come through the worst experience of our lives. <coughs> Why is Paul even talking about boasting in verse 1? Because he's trying to win back the hearts of the Christ Corinthian believers. They were, they were being lured away, as you know, lured away from Christ by false teachers. And these very formidable men were always on top of it, always winning, always impressive, always knew what to say, always had all the answers. So, And they, were, they, they, they made their way, through, not just through life, they made their way through ministry by their boasting, by trotting out their own amazingness for people to see. So, Paul has to win their hearts back from those guys. What does he do? He boasts too, but he flips it. He boasts about his unimpressiveness. He reclaims bragging rights within the Corinthian church by revealing the kind of, well, first of all, in verses 1 through 4, the kind of mind-boggling uh, experience that God gave him. His, I mean, the the uh, false teachers were, would never stop talking about their amazing experiences of God. and So Paul does that too. And then he turns the table on, on them. What happened was this. Paul was given as a real gift from God a kind of guided tour of heaven. We see it in verses 1 through 4. 
But that was 14 years before this. He never told anybody. He didn't write a book about it. He didn't get some investors together and create Jesus Land with an outdoor theater where he could come and people could, you know, pay admission fee to hear him talk about what heaven is like. Paul was not an American, clearly. (laughs) Now when Paul is forced into divulging this sacred privilege God really gave him, he's so embarrassed by it, he feels so awkward about talking about it, he backs into it in this strange third-person kind of way. I know a man in Christ. According to verse 6, Paul prefers to be known by people only for what they can see in him and hear from him for themselves. He doesn't want to be impressive. He's not asking anybody to take his word for any sort of amazing experience he had that they can't verify. He he just wants to be seen as, as just another Christian guy. Why? Because he knows how real power and revival come down, not through privileged experiences, but through common ordinariness and even suffering. Extravagant experiences, Paul's was real, it was legitimate. But extravagant experiences are not his platform for spirituality. Everyday life is. And especially a hard life. So Paul isn't demeaning his experience of the third heaven God gave it. But that high and holy moment was not where Paul broke through to power. His breakthrough to power was through the worst experience of his life. So whatever we don't know what the thorn was, of course. Whatever it was, it was horrible. It made life unendurable. But the metaphor suggests, it suggests to my imagination something like this. Paul has just had his mountaintop experience. He's just been lifted up to heaven. He has seen things he can't even talk about. His heart, he's back down on earth now. He's coming down from this mountaintop experience, walking down the mountainside, down to the valley below where the rest of us ordinary mortals live. His heart is filled with joy, amazement, He's not paying attention. He trips and falls on his way down, puts out his hand to catch himself, and rams a thorn right up into his hand. Picks himself up. Man, that hurts. And instantly, all that joy and fullness and so forth, it's all gone because this really hurts. And uh, he, he tries to pull it out. Can't get it out. He says, okay, I'll man up. I'll push it all the way through. I'll get it out the other side. Tries that. Can't do that. The thorn never leaves his hand. It is always there. It is his new normal. It never stops throbbing. It never stops driving him crazy. Every day, whatever else he's doing or trying to do, whatever else he's thinking about or trying to think about, that thorn is just there in its cruel power. Why did that happen? With the world out there to evangelize, churches to plant, books to write, people to disciple, 
Why did that happen? Very interesting. Paul explains it at two levels simultaneously. Verse 7, at one level, it came out of hell's dirty tricks department, a messenger from Satan. And the fact that Paul describes it as a messenger from Satan might imply that his physical anguish was accompanied by invasive, fiery dart thoughts like, you had this coming to you, Paul. God is finally catching up with you. You totally deserve this. I mean, look at yourself. Think back. Remember this sin? Remember that sin? Oh, here are a few more. How could God not do this to you? You're worthless. By the way, it just occurs to me. I love how Martin Luther used to talk back to Satan. He wasn't taking that stuff. When Satan would do that to him, Luther learned to say, Saint Satan, you're so virtuous. You never do anything wrong. (laughs) He said, by the way, you forgot a few. You're tormenting me for this, 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 and this, but you have totally forgotten about this and this, and they're far worse. Got any more? That's, That's your best shot? And Christ died for it all. So when you tell me that I'm damned because I'm a sinner, you actually comfort me immeasurably because Christ died for sinners. We don't have to take this stuff, guys. Luther said, when he does that to me, I take his own sword and slit his throat. Use the gospel. One of the most fiendish things he does, I believe, is he whispers his horrible thoughts into our mind, and then he says, and he blames us for it. And when that, when he does that, not if he does, when he does, we say, yeah, but I'm going to heaven, and you're, you'll burn in hell forever. Christ died for sinners. Christ died for men with horrible thoughts that they hate. Christ died for men who get victimized by Satan. I find, by the way, messenger of Satan, it is in the text. I find odd comfort in the biblical doctrine of Satan because it means that all the evil in this world and all the evil that I perceive and that I am involved in, it isn't entirely explainable in terms of me alone. Well, thank God for that. So a messenger from Satan to harass me. Present tense, a steady pounding. But at a deeper level, this attack from Satan, there were two levels of causation simultaneously. This was also a mercy from God because when you see, look at verse 7, the gracious purpose of God to keep me from becoming conceited, that gracious purpose begins and ends the verse, literally wraps around the wicked purpose of Satan. So God gave Paul his thorn in the flesh, and it's why Paul goes to the Lord for relief in verse 8. Lord, I could do so much more for you without this. So 
So at, while he's still thinking this through and struggling this through, Paul sees only two options before him. One, go on living with his thorn and be less useful to Christ. Two, get rid of the thorn and be more useful to Christ. Seems obvious. He does not yet see a third option. Keep the thorn with its debilitating impact. Add in all sufficient grace from above and go into spiritual warp speed. Before Paul understands and accepts that, he goes to the Lord three times to make his case because this is really unimaginably horrible and unendurable. Each time the Lord gives him the same answer, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That is not the answer Paul wants to hear. But eventually, it does crack his heart open to something beyond himself. What the Lord teaches us all is that in this life, weakness is the fundamental human experience. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, singular, not weaknesses, plural, because weakness is the foundation on which we have all our other experiences. Weakness pervades everything about us all the time. We never outgrow weakness in this life. We only grow weaker as the years go by. Indeed, the whole point is weakness is where we receive power. Karl Planck writes this, the study of virtually any aspect of Paul's theology must consider this language of affliction. Not because, it's a, a, because of its abundance as much as its fundamental character. Deeply enmeshed in the fabric of his gospel and his way of seeing the world, the language of affliction does not provide simply another theological topic for Paul. Rather, it exposes the ground on which the apostle does theology. The prosperity gospel is completely wrong. Not only because it replaces the glory of God with the shine of money, but because it, it just has no... Pl- it's not doing theology on the foundation of suffering. But Paul did. The Lord is saying to Paul, I'm never going to pull that thorn out of your hand as long as you live. But my grace, my friendship, my nearness, my promises, my presence, my truth, my my smile, my spirit, all that I am worth to you will suffice for all that you are suffering. Your weakness will be the very avenue through which I bestow my power. If your experience of life were left undisturbed, if you remained strong, if you felt no temptation to despair of yourself, you would trust yourself and you would exalt yourself and you would thereby disempower yourself and your wonderful experience of heaven would prove your ruin. Paul, my power will become yours most perfectly in the humbling experience of weakness and need. 
So Paul's heart cracked open. He saw everything in a new way. He began to realize his weakness and pain and inability and embarrassment and inconvenience. All of this, it's not, as Satan had implied, it's not evidence against him. It's how power comes down from beyond all this world. It's the Lord's way for us all. The false teachers knew nothing of this. All they understood was being impressive, which they were. But our power blocks out God's power. Real Christianity does not produce supermen who rise above need. Real Christianity in every generation is divine power received with the empty hands of our desperate need. And without a thorn, would we even open our hands? So after his third try with the Lord, Paul finally accepts it. In fact, he more than accepts it. As we saw earlier, he likes it. He's happy with this new arrangement. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He doesn't conceal his weaknesses. He doesn't hope nobody notices. His self-image is not threatened by the way he's been diminished in life. Paul understands his life is now telling a story that he hadn't even contemplated. There's a new narrative that God has brought him into. And, it, and this new story he's living is an old one. It's a glorious one. The verb translated rest upon in verse 9, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul seems to be alluding to the Shekinah glory that hovered over God's people during their wilderness wanderings. The Bible says Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud of God's glory had rested upon it, had settled upon it, was dwelling upon it. But here's the amazing thing. In the new covenant, where does the glory dwell? Upon the afflicted believer. The holy presence the nearness of God, ground zero for world redemption. Not the false teacher who gets it all his own way. The simple believer whose life is hard. That's where the glory dwells. And Paul doesn't simply acquiesce to that. He feels privileged that that would be his new reality. The power of Christ, the presence of Christ, the glory of Christ are more than worth it. So Paul feels privileged. He's not, there's no self-pity at all in this passage. How can the world defeat a man who finds progress in setbacks because God is involved? He finds opportunity in, in confinement because God is involved. He finds privilege in pain because God is involved. And if God has a purpose of grace for us, and he does a wonderful purpose beyond all we can ask or imagine, something will come into our lives, something unforeseeable, 
something that is not the plan, something unthinkable, something about which right now we would say, no, that'll never happen. No way. And then it'll happen. It's just inevitable. And that is how God will prove to us again in our generation how wonderfully, even surprisingly, his power can rest upon us. I believe that is what the world needs to see in us. Not the weakness of power, but the power of weakness. When people are looking for spirituality today, and there's a lot of openness, do they know where God has actually located spiritual reality? Do they know? Well, that's where our broken lives come in. We are living proof of God's power when life is impossible. God purposes to show many people through us that his power is enough for anyone facing anything and not with bitter resignation, but with reverent delight. People will see that in us and they will put their hope in God. Finally, in verse 10, Paul broadens the relevance of the grace of Christ beyond his own experience of the thorn to everything that you and I are going to face. For the sake of Christ, then, I delight in weaknesses. Then he goes on. Insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see how Paul is coming up with an inventory of difficulties and problems that we all experience. It seems to me he's writing with a kind of fill-in-the-blank open-endedness. So he's saying, let the list grow longer and longer. Add to it everything you will ever face. And the risen Lord above says to us all about that all, my grace is sufficient for you. When you feel inadequate, you feel overwhelmed, the Lord is saying, that's okay. Don't worry about it. When you are defeated, I am victorious for you. When you are confused, I am clear-headed for you. When you are fearful, I am unstoppable for you. My glory will hover over you. My power will be made perfect through you. All I ask is that you give your weakness to me. And I promise to give my strength to you. So all over the world today, our husbands and dads and pastors and leaders, faithful, sincere, conscientious, fun, dutiful, regular guys, oftentimes they appear outwardly strong and impressive, But every single one of them is in fact thinking, how do I even go on? I have nothing more to say. I have nothing more to give. All I have right now to offer the Lord is my exhaustion and my defeat and my confusion and my discouragement, my inability, my I'm so not good at this, my sadness, my humiliation, and the Lord says to us all, 
I can work with that. Isn't that great? Charles Hodge comments, when really weak in ourselves and conscious of that weakness, we are in the state suited to the manifestation of the power of God. The key is the opening phrase of verse 10. Those first five words. For the sake of Christ. This is threatening to us only if the real motto in my heart is for the sake of me. When that gets replaced with for the sake of Christ, this is very joyous. That's the birth of something new, open, humble, resilient, attractive, transferable, captivating. It's when what happens to me and my precious hide is no longer my primary concern. It's when my motives for ministry change from for my own sake to for the sake of Christ. Faith saving is secondary. Christ displaying is primary. Saving my precious hide is secondary. Living dangerously for Christ is primary. Revelation 14 verse 4 defines Christians. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And we just keep saying to the Lord moment by moment, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Lord, you know my answer in advance. Yes, Lord. Following the Lamb wherever He goes. No preconditions, no holding back, all out for Christ. That is humility. And it sets our hearts free. That is how revival comes down. That is not a barrier to revival. That is the thin edge of the wedge breaking into our hearts with power from above. I've got a video at home uh, about the uh, Blue Angels, the Navy pilots. They're the best pilots in the Navy. These are all top guns. And when they do a performance, it's filmed. And after the performance, they debrief, and the team leader plays the film, and their lives depend on close coordination. You know, they're going to take a certain degree of angle at a certain moment. If they're one second off, there could be problems. And so they walk back through their performance moment by moment, and the, the team leader just points out how they can improve. And what I'm so struck by is this. The standard reply among all those top-notch pilots as they're corrected by the team leader is, just glad to be here, sir. These are not guys starting out. These are the best. And their answer is, just glad to be here, sir. There comes a time when we stop asking the Lord to take the problem away. And we settle into a deeper delight in his overruling power. There comes a time when we look at the death of our dreams 
And we say, just glad to be here, sir. And that is when we start to think in a whole new way. It's like, okay, this is so not going to work. Huh. Perfect. (laughs) Now I have the privilege of seeing what only God can do. It's when God gives us the gift of weakness, defeat, and failure. And we're just glad to be involved with him in any way he wants us to be involved. How can that not go well? And guys, that's the wonderful privilege the Lord has called us all into. If you've given your heart to the Lord... Your life is so not a disappointment. Your life is where the glory dwells. And guys, I believe that when we're in glory, we're going to look back and the Lord will explain to us how we were demonstrating his all-sufficiency before the eyes of angels and demons. And we have no idea. God is telling a great story through you. Don't give it away. Let's just say to the Lord, okay, I'm just glad to be here. This is yours from now on. For the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. Christ.